Hello, Alex Steed. Hello, Sarah Marshall. You old son of a gun. (laughs) Sarah, what is Why Our Dads about? Why Our Dads is a show where we watch movies about dads and we watch movies about dads with people who come join us and ask them questions about our ongoing study of dads. We are the Brothers Grimm of dad stories. How about that? I love that. Early Brothers Grimm. Yes. Before they cleaned it up. Yeah. We don't need that. There's, there doesn't have to be a moral every time. And for anyone who's interested, there is a, a Wire Dads Patreon. And there are bonus episodes over there. We just released a bonus episode that folks seem to be loving about Saved by the Bell. Mr. Belding is so lovable. People like some of the points you made. Oh. Thank you, people. <laughs> In particular, about uh, about how growing pains is interesting to us because it's the opposite of the uh, uh, dictatorship we all grew up in in our own households. Yeah, or at least a lot of us. I mean, we should watch some growing pains. That would be another fun episode to do. Fully on board, sir. You have some. You have some really great news, and I feel like the world needs great news. What is it? I do. That's true. I have two kittens. Oh my god, they are adorable. I have brought two kittens into my home. Yeah, you just met them. I've been on the receiving end, thankfully, of many pictures of them. I love them so much. And they will love you so much. And I am speaking for them on that matter. (laughs) Yeah, they're amazing. I have one fluffy boy and one smooth boy. And I'm calling them smooth boy and fluffy boy. And we are also experimenting with calling them Werner and Klaus after Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski. And Werner Herzog likes to sleep on my neck. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge advocate for these names in particular because as far as like binary personalities go, and I've only seen pictures and I've only seen minimal video, one of them, as you've described, has the wild, insane energy of, of Klaus Kinski. And the other one just has the, I just ate a boiled boot energy of uh, Werner Herzog. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I feel like he's, it's not that he's shy. He's just complicated. (laughs) He's just seen some shit. (laughs) Right. Like he wakes up and he feels the jungle is in misery. The birds are in misery. He is in misery. I love them. So our team has grown. It's now you, me, Carolyn, Werner and Klaus Kinski. Speaking of which, we are not the, not the minute this episode comes out, but later this week, we are going to have a special edition t-shirt for Black Friday, which is um, a very sacred day in the United States of America. Yes. Black Friday, if you're not familiar with it, is the day when, as Americans, we honor the gods of commerce by murdering someone inside of a Walmart. It's like ready or not, but for capitalism. It's true, unfortunately. And uh, and we have collaborated with children's book illustrator, author, all around great cartoonist, Liz Klimo. And she has taken one of our favorite podcast moments, which is in discussing young Frankenstein. Uh, do you want to describe the scene? Yes. Um, she has illustrated the moment in young Frankenstein when Victor says to his monster, you are good, and embraces him. And the monster goes, ah! 
<laughs> She's made a beautiful T-shirt of this, and, and all of her all of her art sort of has animals involved, and so it's two dogs. Uh, it's it's beautiful, and it's kind of I feel like in one way or another, it's like this is the moment when we talk about dads in cinema and we talk about dads in movies, dads in popular culture, like this is the aspirational moment. A dad, whatever dad embraces us and acknowledges to us that we are good. (laughs) This is the moment that changes the story of Frankenstein from a horror story to this lovely sex romp, broad comedy. It was a comedy before, but you know, takes all of the horror out of it basically. And this is a moment of forgiveness and jubilee and just like not continuing to chase this being that you feel personifies your mistakes to the end of the earth, but just like embracing it and accepting it. And just this idea that, you know, it's, it's like all these parables about like you get your hand stuck in the pickle jar and you have to let go of the pickle. You know, obviously everyone who listens has different situations with their dad scene. And even if you're in a situation where it is not possible to imagine a dad embracing you and saying you are good. We are your surrogates in that moment. And we are telling you (laughs) that you are good (laughs) because you are. You are good. And also in the drawing, Victor looks like some kind of doodle, right? A poodle or a doodle. And then the monster, I think coincidentally, looks uncannily like, well, it looks a lot like Peter Boyle, but it also looks a lot like your beloved dog, Wheezy. Oh, big dumb Wheezy. She's the best. I love her. She is good. She is good. So we have an episode today that is not just about these rambles. It is about clear and present danger. And we had a special guest. Who is our special guest? We did. We had the honor of having Jamel Bowie on to talk about clear and present danger, which is ironically one of the most soothing movies we have discussed on this show. It was a really lovely conversation that we decided to give to you on Thanksgiving week just because you need some some smoothly ironed khaki and cable knit dad energy and we are here for you this is a 90s dad movie not just in it being a 90s dad movie but is the sort of movie that would play all day every day on Thanksgiving on TBS yeah TBS or TNT we're the USA Network. Yeah. And it just like those basic cable channels that were there for you when you had to stay home from school because you were sick or because you had too much anxiety to face your peers. <laughs> Absolutely. Coincidentally, both your show You're Wrong About and our show Why Are Dads booked Jamel Bowie with zero consultation with each other. <laughs> your only connection, your only shared link is me. And I don't answer emails ever. So you weren't, you weren't finding anything out that way. No, unfortunately, this happened because one of our listeners noticed, as we, we mentioned in the episode, that Jamal said that he would happily be on any movie podcast. Unfortunately, someone let us know immediately and I responded in real time. And you were like, hey, I'm any movie podcast. And I was like, yeah, we are. <laughs> So uh, just quickly, what would you say this movie is about? This movie is about what I think in the 90s seemed like a relatively unexciting form of heroism and now seems like the most exciting thing I can possibly imagine, which is someone who sees something and says something. A career government guy follows his sense of ethics. What a film. It's just one guy. It is the one guy. And at the end, the Green Goblin. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god, because Jamel mentioned that connection in this in this podcast. I looked up. There's a video that someone made, which is just 13 minutes of the best of Willem Dafoe in the Spider-Man movies. We'll link it on social media. It'll make your fucking day. <laughs> There's at some point where he sassily like tussles Spider-Man's hair while he's wearing the costume, and then just like sexily leans on something, and I love it. I think the best way to do any kind of a blockbuster movie is to have the kind of power that allows you to cast some real oddballs and then just let them do what they want and it'll give things some texture. And not only that, be the creative team behind the Evil Dead movies. Yeah, ideally. I mean, I don't know why we didn't have more of that energy in our Marvel blockbusters, but like, it's fine. No one ever asks me about this. They should start. I will be spending this Thanksgiving having a microwavable mac and cheese dinner and milk from a wine glass, just like my holiday role model, Kevin McAllister. And I hope you join me spiritually in the gaudy Chicago mansion in all of our hearts. Beautiful. That's all right. You lived a long time. You had a family that loved you. You had a job that you thought made a difference. That you thought was honorable. And then you see this. You see everything in black and white. No, no, no. Not black and white, Ritter. Right and wrong. And American soldiers and innocent civilians are dead because of it. I will not let you dishonor their memories by pretending you had nothing to do with it. How dare you come in here and lecture me? How dare you, sir? How dare you come into this office and bark at me like some little junkyard dog? I am the President of the United States. You took an oath, and I don't mean to the National Security Advisor. You gave your word to the people the United States. All right, we have a guest today that I'm so excited by, who I think I imagine is haunted by having said in an open-ended way on Twitter that they will be on any movie podcast. Surprise guest, please let us know who you are and, and how we know you. Uh, sure thing. My name is Jamel Bowie. I am a columnist for the New York Times opinion section and a CBS News political analyst. And uh, I imagine very busy these days. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Not as busy as you'd think, although my sense of what constitutes busy may have been completely warped <laughs> by this point. Totally understandable. We had gone back and forth about movies to watch and we were initially talking about Ad Astra, which is a movie a lot of people want us to watch. And we're trying to offer people things to take their minds off of what's happening or to sort of like redirect their anxiety which is funny because like things are in a way less stressful than ever but like maybe more stressful because there's it's like it's like that part in saw where you're like i won the game and then you're like what if it's not my game and someone's just gonna kill me randomly in the last 10 minutes been watching a lot of Saw. That is exactly how I feel all the time right now. But what you had pivoted to after Ad Astra, Jamel, is clear and present danger. So we have so much stuff to unpack. But Sarah, I did want to ask you, how would you frame this from like the dad theme 
and dad lens perspective. This is interestingly also outside of having this is the first time we have a dad on the show. Uh, this is the first time we're covering a dad movie. Like a movie that dads watch. What a big day. Yeah. Well, I will say, <laughs> <laughs> first of all, I like that we're talking about having a dad on the show as if dads are like rare finds in the natural world. It's like we've tracked down a rare dad and we're going to caught one. <laughs> yeah. We're going to bring him on Carson and try and freak him out. But like, <laughs> I found this movie really interesting to watch because I'd never seen it. And I kind of went in feeling like I'd seen it. Like I felt like like this is the kind of movie that was on the USA network a lot in the 90s. And I just thought I'd seen it. But I hadn't. And to me, the most shocking thing about this movie, which says a lot about maybe not empirically what all dad action movies were like in the 90s, but definitely what enough of them that I watched were like that I perceived them this way. I was shocked that Thora Birch was never in Jeopardy. (laughs) Thora Birch plays Harrison Ford's daughter and her name appeared in the credits. And I was like, "Okay, this girl is going to be bound and gagged by some Russians within an hour. Like, this girl is toast. And then she was just fine and nothing bad ever happened to her. This is from 1994, right? Yeah, the, the text was written in 89 and the, the movie is from 94. 90s dad action movies became something else by the end of the decade. I feel like this is an earlier evolutionary stage in the action dad movie that is maybe in a become very calcified in a way that we recognize now. But this is this movie really defied my expectations by being long and involved and not being some sort of like relentless dad under siege plot, which I really expected. It's more like a dad is figuring things out and disappointed in his country. To me, what makes this a dad movie, though, to not spoil everything all at once and get too long winded here is that it ends with a middle-aged man jumping onto a helicopter and another middle-aged man pulling him onto the helicopter and then looking at each other with great love and admiration. (laughs) (laughs) This movie for like 20 minutes becomes a buddy cop movie between Harrison Ford and Willem Dafoe, which is not a thing I, I knew I needed, but I did need it. I just caught up on some of your Twitter commentary from the past 24 hours, and it looks like you are steeped in Clancy, Jack Ryan. Why did you suggest this, and why is this dad cinema? <laughs> so I guess it's worth making, we're saying three separate things here. The first is that I have, so, I, as you alluded to, I have background with kind of the Jack Ryan franchise. And that background isn't just that I've seen all of these movies and maybe have read these books and maybe have played related video games. <laughs> but I'm a military kid. I'm a military brat. My dad served in the Navy for 20 plus years. My mom served in the Navy for 20 plus years. My younger brother currently serves in the Navy. My grandfather did a tour in the Army, kind of like I'm from a military family and grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is a to-the-bone military town. Multiple military bases. Not everyone who lived there is affiliated with the military, but you throw a stone and you'll hit like several people who are. So growing up, Tom Clancy actually had this sort of like measurable impact on my imaginary world, right? Sort of like because everyone's dad's read Tom Clancy novels. And, you know, if we drove to the grocery store, there was a Naval Air Station Museum on the way where you could see, you know, fighter aircraft kind of just hanging out there. And you always heard jet noise going over. I had a high school history teacher who whenever a, a jet flew by, this is not a joke, would pause and say, that's the sound of freedom. 
that's kind of like the environment in which I grew up in. And uh, so th- th- this stuff is just sort of, it's part of my, you know, part of the fiction I consumed growing up. This movie in particular has Harrison Ford and it's kind of like Harrison Ford's also this movie star who is, I think, very formative for a certain generation of boys from Star Wars to Indiana Jones to, you know, this stuff. So Ad Astra appealed to me as well. But as this election approached, I realized that Ad Astra is a movie that fills me weirdly with a ton of anxiety. My take on that movie is that it's sort of like a adaptation of Dante's Inferno where Satan is your dad, your estranged father. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great movie, but it stresses me out. And so I was like, let me think of another movie with Harrison Ford in it. And so this movie came to mind as something that would be fun to watch. That's, I think, pretty low stress. Like, it's kind of a, I think I saw on Twitter, it's like putting on a nice warm sweater. Not too stressful, pretty enjoyable. Has its problems, but you can kind of look past them. And I think it's a movie that actually, in a moment in American politics where I think a lot of our political narratives and a lot of our political personalities are trying to perform various versions of masculinities. I think this movie actually puts forth an interesting variation on like a very classic American masculinity and serves as sort of like this fantasy of what that might look like in the world of politics. Yeah. And people take that very personally and seriously. When I, when I tweeted from our uh, Wire Dads account that I was watching this movie and said, it's very funny watching a movie in which Harrison Ford dabbled in action thrillers, men were upset. about that joking line about dabble this is a certain kind of masculinity for a lot of men this is a uh, a subscription to an ideal into like sort of like a utopic form (laughs) of 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 doing the right thing you know if you if you question it even in passing even jokingly some of them will get real upset about it (laughs) alex have you seen this movie before your description is so perfect this is a movie that i have so many micro scenes burned into my memory probably from watching tbs or from watching usa or whatever tbs tnn usa tnt tom clancy adaptations were just consistently on basic cable channels in the 90s yeah exactly this is a movie where i have a lot of the scenes in my brain but i didn't know any of the specifics and so it was so interesting visiting from that perspective and also i mean just when we talk about like wish fulfillment and utopic versions of whatever other realities might exist outside of the one that we exist in, this is a movie in which (laughs) the president does comparatively one small bad thing in which some people get killed. Compared to now, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a sloppy, impulsive thing. And the deputy intelligence director... (laughs) stands up to him and does the right thing it appears that maybe everything will be okay afterward you saw you describe it as a snug sweater or whatever Jamel before and and I was like yeah exactly in particular in this moment this is a lovely description of a utopic vision of America (laughs) even though when this came out I did you know uh, Tom Clancy seems like a cold war fetishist I mean he seems like a very conservative person with a very clear vision of what is right and wrong in this country in comparison to what we're going through now you're like oh this is so nice I love two things about the president depicted in this movie I had so many like hey it's that guy moments where I thought someone was some guy and he was some other guy. It's not the guy from Babe, Sarah. Yeah, I know. He's not. It's the guy from The Thing. 
No, it's it's better. It's Gary from The Thing. That's much more sinister. He looks like the nice pig man, but he's the scary Antarctica man. Exactly. Joined up with the judge who fried the Scolari brothers in Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> but then the other thing I love is that I don't know if they showed this earlier, but I only picked up on it in like the second to last scene when they show this president in the Oval Office and he has a big old jar of jelly beans. I feel like this is 80s toxic masculinity in the presidency. It's like, it's still fucked, but it's fucked in a very quaint way from where we are now. This is like such a Hollywood version of Clancy where it's still a little liberal because it's roasting Reagan. Yeah, Reagan was the jelly bean guy. Well, I mean, so the book was written in 89. This is totally an Iran-Contra. This is a movie about Iran-Contra, more or less. It's, a, it's sort of a fantasy version in which instead of the National Security Agency running this illegal scheme and not having not facing any kind of accountability for it, someone within the bureaucracy speaks up and puts an end to it. For a guy like Clancy, who is very conservative, but like very traditional, it is sort of a fantasy of how things are supposed to work. That even if there is wrongdoing by untrustworthy politicians, then there is at least someone, a straight white family man who cares about his job, who does something to put an end to it. And I think that's kind of the political context for this. What if Iran-Contra went the other way? Or at least what if the people responsible didn't get away with everything? Mm. You were saying earlier that you think that this says a lot of interesting things about masculinity. I'm curious about what you believe it says about that, both sort of like broadly and also from whatever we were thinking about with regard to masculinity in the, the early 90s. First of all, I think this and its predecessor movie, Patriot Games, both sort of really rely on the image Harrison Ford had at the time which was a man's man, but not a Gordon Gecko or not a you know Stallone character or something. Not, none of that, but kind of a throwback to a John Ford Western or a Humphrey Bogart character. Someone who has all of the hallmarks of traditional American masculinity is tough, is dedicated, is unsentimental, but also at the same time, has this sort of like core of honor or dignity or a sense of duty that uh, compels them to do the right thing, even if they don't necessarily want to get involved. Harrison Ford is kind of playing that kind of character in the early 90s. He's playing sort of a dark version of it in Presumed Innocent. He's playing a version of it in, uh, in Frantic. He's playing a version of it in Witness, right? Sort of like all these often one title films from the early 90s and late 80s starring Harrison Ford. He takes on roles that you could imagine older Clark Gable playing. So this movie kind of takes classic Hollywood masculine archetype, plucks them in sort of modern American politics and kind of sees how it plays out. And how it plays out is that Ford's character, Jack Ryan, is an ordinary guy. He's like affluent. He's at the top of the social pecking order, more or less. But he's mostly concerned with doing his job being a good husband, being a decent father, and trying to do what's right. And when he's confronted with a situation which challenges his sense of what's right and his sense of what, of the, the oaths he's, he took, there's that great scene with James Earl Jones playing another kind of character like this, another dignified 
duty-bound character. He's James Earl Jones' character, Admiral Greer, is in the hospital, dying of pancreatic cancer, and says to Harrison Ford's character, you took an oath not to me, not to my boss, not to the president, but to the people of the United States. The highest good for an American man is to uphold this kind of commitment to the republic, to be a good citizen. Ford's drive in all of this is to be a good citizen no matter what it takes, even if it means putting one's own career in danger, having to face accountability for one's own actions. The important thing is to be a good citizen, uphold the Constitution, to show commitment and honor to soldiers, to everyone involved in all of this. And I think it's worth the contrast to make in the 90s is actually to, it's sort of on the conservative end, it is to the people who enabled Iran-Contra, enabled sort of the scandals of the 80s. And within the movie, you have uh, the two members of the National Security Council one of whom is played with a guy who's in Mission Impossible, Henry Cherney. The guy who looks like a real asshole, generally. <laughs> he usually always plays like these bureaucratic characters, like these bureaucratic bad guys. He, I think he, more than anyone, represents a sort of like young Reaganite, kind of indifferent to the rule of law type. But then as far as like the meta text of the movie, the other person that Jack Ryan is juxtaposed against is someone like Bill Clinton, who is like a baby boomer kind of didn't serve the conservative critique, which like doesn't seem to really show much of any commitment to the country in the way that George H.W. Bush did. And so Jack Ryan's, I think it's also juxtaposed against someone like that in the Oval Office, uh, implicitly. Rita Kempley said in a review for the Washington Post that Harrison Ford starts as the CIA's answer to Columbo. <laughs> when I was watching this. Yeah. He's got some Columbo energy whiffing off of him. She says Columbo and then also draws some parallels to just early Jimmy Stewart about like a guy who is just there to do the right thing and not necessarily be a, a roided out a revenge asshole. So I'm curious, what does the expectation of Action Dad become after all this has happened? Well, okay. A good example of like the exploded 21st century carcass of action dad is a movie i haven't seen since it was in theaters but loved at the time which is white house down which is a movie where we have channing tatum going yar and like jumping across the oval office or something while shooting two guns when i think of an action dad movie and what they to me had become by the late 90s and they and like there are a lot of 80s movies like this too like i was thinking of the commando model when I was thinking about my shock at Thora Birch not being in jeopardy here is the more I'm saying this the more I'm like they did this in the 80s this is diehard too it's just like maybe the exception is rare generally but I think of the action dad just the general dominant form of the action dad movie being like one dad under siege protecting his family from something big and scary and also society right and i guess expected us to segue fairly quickly into harrison ford being like having to protect his family and like i think i assumed this movie would be like air force one i think i saw a lot of little bits of air force one on tv it's interesting because harrison ford is the protagonist or jack ryan is the protagonist in a way that allows him to react to things and to discover things and to, you know, go forth and be very competent and handle everything in a way that's very appealing. But to be, to, to go on a, a journey of realizing what his bosses have been up to and be accused of being a Boy Scout and everything. And he doesn't, you know, start off in a position of being 
the man to protect his family and therefore society and then be called on to do it and just do it. Like he, his job in this story is partly to figure out what kind of organization he's been working for and then what to do about that. He's tasked in this movie in a way that I found extraordinarily refreshing with upholding a code versus protecting his property. Yes, right. It's like, what kind of an American are you going to be? This is actually a more complicated moral dilemma than just like shooting a bunch of people. Yeah, exactly. And in in movies like Taken, you could look at it like there's a person who's protecting lives at risk. And you could look at it like there's a person who's protecting their specific daughter and wife. And those things are important as well. But like, it very much feels like you fucked with my property and I'm going to come at you. This movie is like this man just uniformly and universally does the right thing. And not only that, in a way that seems novel right now, it seems like as a result of that person doing that, someone might be held accountable. It's like the end of Wall Street. Like, I think there's also something very sweet and to me now tragic about these movies that end with someone bravely standing up to testify against the big bad in the story we've just seen. And then we go to credits and you're just supposed to assume that it all works out. Just like we're just supposed to watch that audition scene and flash dance and be like, yeah. And then <laughs> she got hired by the ballet. That probably happened. What's your take, Javel? When you were talking about the way in which this movie ends with him giving this testimony and Sarah, you just saying that the implication is that the people are held accountable. I kept thinking about movies like Seven Days in May from uh, John Frankenheimer. This is a 1964 film in which Kirk Douglas playing kind of an upstanding colonel helps stop a, a coup from happening in the United States. Kind of a, a it's a very Cold War movie. Also has sort of sort of a similar vibe. Kind of the, a person who discovers with the audience the plot and then goes on to do something about it, never expecting personal glory, but simply wanting to see kind of democracy and the constitution upheld. I think these movies, you could think of them as a genre unto themselves. Usually they're broken up into sort of like their respective corners. So like a political thriller, like Seven Days in May, or paranoia thriller, like All the President's Men, or uh, The Parallax View. But they're really all kind of the same story, with different twists on them. An ordinary person in some sort of position of authority seeks to uphold his or her, or usually his oath to the constitution or to the society at large by stopping a plot that corrupts it. And they all, to me, speak of sort of like a fantasy that Americans have that these things actually happen when they don't, right? You know, Watergate, Watergate sort of, I guess, the example Americans go to, but most of the people in the Nixon administration, or most people who could have done something, didn't. Iran-Contra obviously pretty much ends with a cover-up doesn't work, but no one's held accountable. Yeah, the the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, creates a, a network of secret torture camps, and the person responsible goes on to become CIA director. Time and time again, We see these awful scandals that kind of violate the things we tell ourselves about this country. And it rarely seems like anyone who could do something about them does. And so we have all these films, which are basically what ifs. Like, what if someone stood up to Reagan? What if someone stood up to Nixon? That kind of thing. What if we tried that sometime? (laughs) 
<laughs> and we're presented very elegantly and kind of bludgeoned with it at the end of this movie where the president has created this situation in which we've interfered in some secret war drug stuff it was bad it shouldn't have happened etc and finally jack ryan confronts the president and the president lays out exactly what the reality is almost all the time where he says you're not going to report this you're going to keep this to yourself you're going to use it when you need to you're going to take the hit and then when you have to leave your position you're going to be able to tour the country like Oliver North in this situation and speak for twenty thousand dollars an event now that would be whatever fifty or seventy thousand dollars and then have a fox show and then have a fox show exactly and he lays out exactly what the option is so you know kind of what the binary is even if you don't internally Honestly, the past four years have made me incredibly embarrassed about how inadvertently gullible I have been, right? Because I grew up watching like Red Dawn and then watching movies like this that are kind of like post-Cold War thrillers in which usually Russians in one way or another were like ultimately bad guys. It doesn't happen in this movie, but this is a paradigm we see in these kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. Or like in Top Gun where we never name the USSR, but everyone just knows. They're flying <laughs> Russian planes, etc. So like I've always assumed that we have an entire generation of people who grew up on Cold War or post-Cold War thrillers who believe in right and wrong and that there's someone always trying to subvert it. And then presented with a situation in which it seems absolutely evident that that situation that was outlined (laughs) is infiltrating our government in one way or another. Everyone's like, yeah, it's fine. It's like, so no one wants to be Jack Ryan? Is that not an appealing role? Like, what happened? (laughs) Everyone wants to fuck Jack Ryan. And Jamel, you clearly know the history of this character, but it seems like the rumpled admin was a very short period of time for Jack Ryan on screen. He eventually became like a, like a video game star. Yeah, so this clear and present danger, which is the last one Harrison Ford did, although Air Force One kind of just feels like one of these movies too. That's not a Jack Ryan movie? No, no, no. Although in, in the Tom Clancy books, Jack Ryan does become the president. Oh. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> So there's this way in which Air Force One, although it is not an official Jack Ryan movie, it's non-canonical. It kind of <laughs> is. Except in, in the books, President Ryan isn't like President Punch or anything. Like he doesn't, you know, he's not like a, a action star. Mm-hmm. So but then there's the sum of all fears, which is with Ben Affleck in 2001, I think, 2002. And there's like Nazis and Russians in that movie, right? Right, right, right. But it's a very 9-11 movie. Yeah, I gotcha. And then the most recent, I mean, besides the Amazon series, the most recent film was Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit with Chris Pine. Hmm. So one of the interesting thing is how like they age him down considerably, right? Like Alec Baldwin in uh, Hunt for Red October is in his 30s. Yeah. Um, and they age him up for these two movies and they age him down even younger than Alec Baldwin. It's also, it's like the Hulk. Like they can't keep an actor in that role any longer. Right. To jump off something Sarah said earlier, this, you know, bureaucratic hero in the, in the dad action movie pretty quickly becomes the, I gotta save my family. I'm personally gonna... I mean, I mean, this this is Ford in Air Force One. This is Liam Neeson in ninety percent of the movies he's done since two thousand four. You know, I, I will personally avenge my family with lethal violence going after the threat. I don't, I don't have any kind of well defined theory about the shift, but I, I do wonder if it has something to do with geopolitics, right? That a, a movie like Patriot Games or Clear and Present Danger 
um, or Hunt for Red October or any of these is happening at a time when the threat to American lives isn't really at the doorstep. It's either corruption within or these broad external forces that like pose an ideological challenge or pose some sort of like existential threat in the sense that they'll control the world and we'll have to live in accordance with that way of life. After 9-11, things seem much more personal, right? Sort of the threat is a terrorist showing up at your doorstep. It is a dirty bomb. It is, you know, someone blowing up a bus. It's this kind of thing. And accordingly, in like sort of our dad action heroes, they go from being unraveling conspiracies or stopping corruption to personally taking the fight to usually sort of like assorted foreign others. Taken gets away with this sort of rank xenophobia by having like having the villains be like European nationals, except at the end when I guess the villain is sort of like a stereotype of like a rich Saudi prince. It's 100% in that sort of like zone of perfectly pleasurable to watch with awful politics. <laughs> right. The trouble is that it goes down so smoothly and then you're like, oh, no, wait, that smoothie was full of fishing wire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, this this plays into what we've been talking about for the entire decade of our friendship, which is the pivot from when America stopped being terrified of serial killers and they started being terrified of terrorists. It happened sort of at the same time. Those are such extraordinary points is that it's not like an existential eventual threat. It is a right now threat and you have to protect your daughter and your wife from getting ravaged. Right. We can't expect to be motivated to care about the government for which we work being eaten away by corruption in terms of like sheer brain candy of the kinds that studios go for, the kind of post 9-11 plot of like, you alone can save your family and their metonym for America. And like these foreigners are just, they're pure evil and they're going to murder everyone right now. I mean, that's the plot of Hostel. Like the movies just all went in this direction, I think. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Those kind of movies demand a different kind of hero, a different kind of version of masculinity. It's sort of like very aggressive, you know, take no prisoners, ask no questions kind of type. And that's why the Amazon Jack Ryan series, which I watched. Which stars Jim Halpert? John Krasinski. John Krasinski. Yeah. Which I remember everyone making fun of him for. And I would love your thoughts on that if you have any. There's like the feeling of he's trying to be Jack Ryan, but it's a little bit embarrassing. And it's like, why are some men allowed to to do embarrassing things more than others? <laughs> <laughs> It's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) My kind of vague understanding from just like reading entertainment press or whatever is that back when they were casting for Captain America for the Marvel movies, he, he was actually in the running. He was like one of the contenders. And he didn't get it. And I think he didn't get it in part because you want the character to be a Boy Scout. You don't want the character to actually look like a boy. He has a puppy face. He looks like Deputy Dog. (laughs) His on-screen charm is, yeah, he has a puppy face. He looks kind of boyish. I think he's been trying to get past that over the last decades. Or he was in that like weird Benghazi movie. I don't know if, if you saw that. And now he's you know playing kind of an action star. He's trying to get hard. <laughs> right, he's trying to get hard. You know, a serious man's man. The problem is that the Jack Ryan character isn't that. Right. And so hmm. they're basically trying to fit a, a post-9-11 kind of version of the dad hero into a character and into a franchise that is very much about this sort of older, more traditional 
vision of American masculinity. And it kind of just, it feels off. Mm. Like Jack Ryan doesn't put on a bulletproof vest and like do a takedown in the, you know, the Venezuelan capital, which happens in that series. Jack Ryan, as we see in this, in Clear and Present Danger, reluctantly goes down to help rescue some fallen soldiers, but isn't like, like in that entire sequence, that last 20 minutes, he doesn't carry a gun. From the time he is in the office or whatever of the drug dealer and like kind of making his play to when he's on the helicopter, he gets in a couple fights, like three or four fights, but he doesn't shoot a gun, doesn't use a gun. And on two occasions, one in which we think that one of the drug guys is going to beat up the other drug guy with a bat, and also a time in which Willem Dafoe shoots someone, he, in a very meaningful way, is not looking at the violence. Hmm. Like, he is, he's looking in the other direction while someone else is sort of practicing right. or executing the violence that needs to take place. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he, it's not like he revels in the violence that needs to occur in, in his position, which is really interesting and compelling. And when I saw pictures of Jim from the office jacked, like, out, like, kicking ass, I was like, I thought that that was what, Jack Ryan was supposed to be all about. Right. Yeah. Even if you go to Hunt for Red October. 80s Alec Baldwin, soft Baldwin. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, he's like, I mean, even though he's Alec Baldwin in the late 80s and like sort of is a just strikingly handsome person, he is coded as a nerd in that entire film. This is not a guy who gets his hands dirty. There's a whole sequence where he's dismissed by one of the naval officers and another naval officer played by the late former Tennessee Senator. Fred Dalton Thompson. I cannot believe I came up with that. Law and order's own. (laughs) (laughs) Played by the late Fred Thompson points out that no, he was, uh, Ryan was in the Naval Academy, had an accident, um, is tougher than you think. But in that film, there's, he is not really part of the action. He is often subordinate to other characters in the scene, in the frame. That reminds me of kind of the the conception of the final girl in horror, because I bring everything back to horror, if at all possible, because basically, you know, the final girl is the girl who survived the slasher movie, and Carol Clover comes up with this terminology in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, my favorite academic book. And the argument that she makes about why teenage boys in particular love these horror movies so much, although, of course, girls do too at the time, is that for a boy, it's a meaningful experience to watch someone who perhaps you're able to identify with. You see kind of a tomboyish girl, which the final girl often is, as a stand-in for you because you feel like a deficient man who's yet to sort of have a growing up experience and have to arm yourself and like become a man by, you know, by stepping up and and, uh, defending yourself against Michael Myers. Or whoever, you know, and then we see that in, you know, with Ripley and Alien and and a lot of action movies, I think, that feature women who are maybe allowed more to start off as every woman types and then to learn quickly and advance in a difficult situation. And I feel as if we used to see more male action protagonists like that and that we've lately gotten very dependent on the model of like guy shows up. (laughs) knows exactly what to do and then does it. Yeah. I was surprised again in the context of thinking Jack Ryan was a particular thing that like, I, I mean, I am not as smart (laughs) as this character is, but I, I could potentially be in these same situations and just sort of like, like exercise 
proper values and thinking hard enough and get out of really bad situations. You you have absolutely told off your bosses before, like or have wanted, yeah. And also that too, like that thing where you can empathetically connect with a character in a way that is more significant than liking to dream that you would be like that without any reason to suspect so. Right. That is the central appeal of the character. That is why, especially it's played by Harrison Ford, it works. For a typical, like an average middle-aged man, I could do this. I could solve the problem. I could find the wrongdoing. I have the capability to do this. Mm. And I, I sort of think that the reason why these two movies were very successful and that subsequent Jack Ryan movies really aren't is because they leave this, they shift away from this kind of character and more towards traditional action character, like a callow young man in the case of Affleck and Pine. It just hits different, right? It just doesn't work the same way. And you lose kind of the essential appeal of the character to the older male audience that you're trying to appeal to. On the flip side, right, like I think the Neeson movies are kind of like, you know, your Taken's, your Walk Amongst the Tombstones. All of these are kind of this taking this this observation about sort of wishful, not just for wish fulfillment, but imagining oneself as merging that with the young man does everything on his own to produce like a new synthesis, like the 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 old man action star. Hmm. Who's like the old man who knows what to do. And who doesn't want to do any of it until his dad, who's played by James Earl Jones in this movie, or his figurative dad is like, I know you don't want to do this. It sucks that you have to do a lot of this stuff, but like there is a higher calling and he never calls it God. He calls it the calling of the American. You think that he's talking about God the whole time until he reminds you that it's the American people. I really thought he was going to say God. (laughs) Not the president. Not even God, but the Constitution of the United States. I love it. And then and then we see this transformation from a nerd who doesn't want to do this stuff. He just wants to do his job to someone who liberates prisoners. And in that liberation says, come with me, son. <laughs> like he becomes the value laden dad who has to actually live up to his responsibility. And then he looked up at the clouds and he's like, I can't do it. It's too much. And his old boss appears and he's like, Simba. let me say better movie if that happens you can do a fan at it yeah luke do it (laughs) so jamal if you had to sell the idea of this movie to someone who's like clear and present danger nah this doesn't make any sense like what would you tell them about why this is something to spend some time with the direct pitch for the type of movie it is, it's like, do you like document thrillers? Because this is sort of a document thriller with a couple more explosions. There, are, There's maybe three or four action sequences total in the whole film. So it's a lot of like bureaucratic maneuvering. And if you like there's that There's a nice of, tense computer scene, which is just, they're so precious. With a printer. <laughs> As a quick sidebar, I sort of love the like 87 to 94 is sort of like the era of technology that I love in movies because it's advanced enough that you can kind of, oh, they you they have this device to do something to get the plot going, who cares? But it's also cumbersome enough and low tech enough that you can have, there's like a, there's still, a, there's friction between wanting to do something and the thing happening. Mm-hmm. If you want to make a phone call you have a cell phone, but the cell phone has to be sort of like connected, has to be connected to a satellite. You have to be near something. If you want to get a document from the computer, it has to be printed out. It can't just be sent 
or save to something. If you want to tap a phone line, you actually have to physically tap a phone line, sort of all these things. Yeah, movies that depict technology existing in physical spaces, I feel like just give it a sort of storytelling stickiness that I love. I agree. Right. But I think that the pitch for this movie is that, like, it is a fantasy about what if the system worked? What if wrongdoing was punished? What if there were decent people in the government who saw something going wrong and decided to do something about it? That is like the warm blanket part of it. It's sort of like you are you are seeing the fantasy that America has about itself. That's an okay thing to want to watch, right? Like even if the hero is like literally in the CIA, generally, historically, not the good guy, <laughs> it is to me a little dismaying that Americans don't seem to have this fantasy anymore. That's sort of like our cynicism is such that even the idea that this would be possible seems far-fetched. Like, can you think of a, a movie in the last 10 years that the only thing I can think of that even remotely comes close is Captain America the Winter Soldier, which is explicitly an homage to these kinds of movies. Yeah. I, I mean, the only movie I can think of that's... It's not about government, but the you know, movie that I treat as a comfort movie for this reason is Spotlight, because that's another movie where they're like, we're finding the truth about what this powerful institution that everyone just kind of defers to has been up to. And then the end of the movie is them printing the first story of the series of stories where they're going to share the truth. And then we watch the papers go out into the world. And it's like the end. The truth is out there and Prometheus brought the fire back and it's, yeah. And you're like, oh, but then what? The truth is like a tiny kitten that scraggles its way out of a sewer drain. Like what then? You're just going to end on the wet kitten, like struggling down the sidewalk as if we're not supposed to be concerned. And in that case, it's a movie where there had been so many investigations and so many other stories and people in various parts of the world had known quite a lot, just not in a way where the bubble really burst, I think, for the American mainstream consciousness about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, the way I remember it breaking in 2001, 2002. So it feels like that's a story where the part of the story that's missing is the part where like, well, why did the truth catch this time? And like, how still is it not really, how did that work? And how did it not work? And why? That's like the most recent movie I can think of. And the one that feels relevant to my life where it's like, if you find out what's going on, and if, if you see something and say something, then something will happen about it. Especially ironic considering on Twitter, at least once a day, I see someone ask into the void where the adults are. <laughs> and Jack Ryan is the er adult. I do think like if we do see a first Biden term, I mean, we have to consider now that like entertainment audiences are so split and there isn't like a national audience anymore. There's various segments and there's various segments of social media, et cetera, et cetera. But I have been saying for a while now that I think we're going to see the rise of the progressive patriarchy. Patriot. And I think we will see people who want to see versions of Winter Soldier where people do the right thing in the face of all of sort of the institutional wrong things. And that'll be some sort of like comfort porn for a lot of people who just lived four years overtly in a hundred years, <laughs> not overtly, in which it, there's a reality in which like the government says that it's doing one thing and it's actually doing a nefarious other thing. Yeah, I can't keep watching Aaron Brockovich quarterly. I need new movies. <laughs>
I'll say as as I'm thinking about it, there are there are a couple. There's Dark Waters, which came out last year, which was terrific. Which I could not get anyone to go see with me over Christmas. Oh, that's too bad. That's like that's exactly the kind of movie that I <laughs> I'd be like, Mom and Dad, we gotta go see Dark Waters now. Yeah, no, my mom was not. I was like, it's Mark Ruffalo. You love Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, I'm excited to see it, though. Also, I mean, another entry in the Mark Ruffalo says they knew it and they'd let it happen, like (laughs) Cinematic Universe. Yeah. (laughs) And then The Report, which is actually The Report is a document thriller. It's with Adam Driver and it's about the Senate torture report. And that's kind of the closest thing. Because the thing about A Dark Waters or an Aaron Brockovich or any of those legal thrillers is that they're very much about people on the outside unraveling an institution or a challenging institution. But Jack Ryan is specifically an insider. This is the deputy national security advisor. This is someone who, as the movie at final scenes alludes to, could just play the political game and not have to suffer really any consequences or, or, or face really any challenges. Uh, and even the report involves sort of a junior staffer. So sort of this this idea of someone who is right sort of at the seat of power deciding that their oath is more important than their power is not a thing you see very much in film. I'm going to bring this to a close. There's a definite dad in this movie or father in this movie and with Harrison Ford, but who is the daddy? And we always let people interpret that however they want to interpret that. (laughs) We have a tradition also of naming female daddies, and I'm not going to do that here, but I do want to acknowledge that Anne Archer is in this, just showing up like the Sessions musician she is and playing a lovely wife. And I just want to thank her for that. Thank you, Anne Archer. I'm sorry nobody bothered to write you apart. You would have done great. <laughs> She's always confidently observing. She's like, I'm your lovely wife. Why would you cheat on me? <laughs> we know she makes more money than he does, which is a great aside. I do like that it's a movie where a man has to do important business saving democracy and he doesn't have a wife who's like a big bitch about him missing soccer because that's a very tired screenplay contrivance that I'm very tired of. I'm just going to be predictable and say it's James Earl Jones because he was, I believe, the only original voice that came back for the new Lion King. And I just think that that really expresses who he is to the generations of of American viewers who have grown up with him in some way. Like if he tells you to do the right thing, you're just going to fucking do it. Mine is, and I can't believe, I mean, outside of just in passing reference in the beginning, we haven't even referred to the fact that Willem Dafoe is so incredible in this movie at just being Willem Dafoe. He is. Yeah. <laughs> at, a, at certain points, it seems like he's going to turn to the camera and go Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a CIA analyst myself. <laughs> it's that era of like weirdly cut strange looking where you know there's a lot of twists and turns about knowing where willem dafoe is going to stand but as sarah said earlier middle-aged uh willem dafoe saves middle-aged harrison ford and you know it's it's the only sexual tension that happens in the entire movie so i'm gonna i'm gonna say willem dafoe at that at that moment uh i was going to say willem dafoe so i guess i will instead say 
Joaquin uh, de Almeida, I think that's how you say his name. But this is the villain of the film. He's an uh, American-Portuguese actor. He's described in the movie as a Latin Jack Ryan, which the use of Latin that way feels very early 90s pre-political correctness. They're like, that's all you have to know. I think he's great in this. He is sinister, but also sort of like sympathetic. Just wants to deal drugs without all the mess. He's a simple man. He wants to deal drugs and wear beautiful clothing. And that's that. I've at this point sort of like fully evolved into sort of like a dad. There is an outfit Harrison Ford is wearing at the end of the movie or in the last kind of sequence when it's a pair of sort of darker wash jeans, boots, a Oxford dress shirt, and like something that looks like a Harrington jacket, but maybe like a little lighter. And I was like, man, I want to, I want that outfit. <laughs> I think you can make it happen, man. <laughs> I think that your your Christmas present to yourself can be a Jack Ryan look. Or, or what this character is wearing, Almiette is wearing throughout the movie, which is sort of like either these sort of like pleated larger size pants. And then, you know, very, very like very 90s, bigger clothes. Is this the Armani look? Blazer and turtleneck. Right, right. Willem Dafoe's look, which is which is linen, like white linen, and then sort of like black tight t-shirts, does look very good. Yeah, this is a movie with some fantastic menswear in it, which also must be acknowledged because like a lot of movies don't put time and effort into men's clothes. And when they do, it's really fantastic to behold. Yeah, it sure is. This has been a delight. Does anyone have any final final thoughts they want to share? Yeah. I mean, I'm just really happy that we watched this because I was expecting it to be a fun kind of cheesy later 90s type action movie of the kind I recognized and it ended up being like yeah cozy and exactly the way that you're describing Jamel like I love in my heart of hearts I secretly like finish these movies believing that like maybe the next time someone tries this it'll work absolutely Jamel thank you so so much this has been a delight and we're so happy to have you really happy to do this fun to talk about the movie fun to talk to y'all All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Why Our Dads. Uh, thank you, Jamel, for joining us in this episode. I can't believe that <laughs> you came on our show. And I am so grateful. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing these episodes, making them sound great. Thank you to Mozart Nunez for some of the uh, interstitial music that you hear in this episode. Just a reminder to find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, You can find us on Patreon if you're looking for ways to support the show financially. Don't forget to look for that t-shirt. It'll come out on or before Black Friday 2020. The the Liz Clemo partnership shirt. It is awesome. It is Young Frankenstein inspired, we'll say. And it conveys our message. You are good. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. Let us know how you're doing. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, If you're listening before Thanksgiving. If you're listening like two weeks from now, I hope that in 50 weeks you have a fabulous Thanksgiving. All right. Thank you, everybody.